We're looking at Psalm 92, and we know God speaks it to us. We know we need God to be at work as we hear him, so let's pray. Father, please do um, open our hearts, yeah, our heads, hearts, to your word. Please do be at work as we hear it. Uh, please form us, cause us to respond as we ought to you. To you, our great God and glorious Savior. In the Lord Jesus. Amen. The psalm is a song, probably sung regularly on the Sabbath, hence that official title. The 17th century writer, historian, philosopher Voltaire supposedly said, If it's too silly to be said, it can always be sung. Supposedly, various attributions. Uh, The thought isn't necessarily everything that's sung is silly, but some things that are sung are very definitely silly. For instance, Hakuna Matata. It's silly. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy, Hakuna Matata. Well, too silly to be said on days when there are real problems. It might distract for the length of the lyrics. I guess, hey, Mr. Blue Sky can distract for the length of the lyrics. But afterwards, reality bites. This psalm, this song, is something very different. It's designed to help reality bite. It's designed to help the glorious reality of who God is and what God does to get a hold of our heads and our hearts and our lives so let's dig in. Verse 1. The writer knows it's good. He knows it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to his name. His name. It's good to declare his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's good because it's right to thank the giver. It's right to praise the praiseworthy. It's right to declare the truth. Thanking and praising and declaring God's person and work fits with the reality of who God is and what God does. It is good to thank and praise and declare because it fits reality. And it's good to thank, praise, and declare because it fits us. It's how we are wired. It fits human experience. It completes human experience. I take it there is an experiential angle uh, to the goodness of thanks, praise, and declaration here. It is right. It feels right. It fits reality. It fits us. In verse 4, the writer mentions his gladness. Uh, One of the things about gladness is that it always speaks. Or at least it has an instinct to speak. In his book on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis uh, writes about how strange he found to hear the Bible and the, 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 the Bible writers and God himself telling people to thank God and to praise God. At first he thought it was a bit like a friend fishing for a compliment. He pictured an insecure God who needs others to tell him how good he is in order to maintain a positive self-image. He didn't much like the idea of God like that. God using him and humanity to boost his ego. Then he had a thought. Human enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. It's just what we do. 
Circumstances might silence us, uh, but the instinct is there. We thank who we're thankful to. We praise what we value. C.S. Lewis noticed that the world rings with praise. Uh, Lovers praising their mistresses, uh, readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, uh, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Lewis noticed humans spontaneously praise whatever we value. Then he noticed that humans spontaneously urge others to join them in praising whatever we value. One way we invite others to praise uh, what what we're we're praising is by saying things like, uh, wasn't that brilliant? Didn't she do well? Isn't he clever? Isn't it beautiful? We're inviting other people to join us and say, yes, that's right. Lewis concludes, should be a slide for this one, the psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying us as regard the supremely valuable what we delight to do what we indeed can't help doing about anything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I think Lewis is right on this. I think it explains why gratitude habits have become so popular with people who, if you ask them, think there's no one, nothing out there to be grateful Two, my atheist friends, three, great, three things they're grateful for every day. Completes the enjoyment. Well, would if they thanked the giver. It is good to thank and praise and declare God's goodness, God's greatness, because it fits reality. It is good to thank, praise, and declare because it fits us. It's what we do with whatever we value. And the thanks, praise, and declaration express and complete our enjoyments. Perhaps enjoy sounds a bit strong. Um, Perhaps enjoy sounds a bit strong for the way you feel about God. Perhaps you don't particularly feel glad. I've been using and referring to the diagram, the head and heart diagram this year. Um, It's one way to think about our inner life. Uh, The Bible's word for heart uh, covers what we think of as head and heart. And even things we feel in our guts. Thoughts, conscience, will, passions. The Bible's pattern is to work from thoughts into conscience, will, and passions. It is, after all, a book of words. The words work on the rest of us through our thoughts. God relates to us by his spirit through his word. The Spirit wields those words to tune our thoughts, our conscience, our will, our passions. In this psalm, there's a stream of gladness that runs through it. He mentions it once, but that you can, you can hear it on, on, in, in all the verses. The gladness gives energy to the thanks, praise, and declaration. The gladness is born of thoughts. The thanks, praise, and declaration are driven by thoughts about who God is, 
and thoughts about what God does. In my more melancholy moments, um, I, I can look at myself. I know all too well that I don't love the Lord half as much as I should like to, and I love him much, much less than half as well as he deserves. Depending on what else is going on, I'm as likely to feel sad as glad. Now, it's not necessarily either or. Sadness, stress, struggle about some things can, can actually sit beside gladness about others. We're complex beings. But when we notice we're not rejoicing in the Lord and feel little gladness in connection with him, we can't work directly on our gladness. There's no point in working up gladness. Fake it till you make it gladness. Well, it has no roots in reality. But we can soak our thoughts in reality and run through the realities of who God is and what God has does. And those gladness-inducing realities as it will work from our thoughts into our conscience, will, and passions. So look at what's happening in this psalm. Thinking As he thinks about who God is and what God does, it drives the writer to thank God, to praise God, to declare to others who God is and what God does. As his thoughts soak in the reality of God, it induces gladness and it drives thanks and praise and declaration. Thoughts driving passions, conscience, will, So look at the realities about who God is um, that the psalm soaks in at the beginning, middle, and end of the psalm. Uh, Verse 1, God is the Most High. There is nothing and no one above him. He is far above every power and authority. He rules everything seen and unseen. Not only is he far above every other power and authority, but verse 8, he is on high forever. He will continue to rule over every other power and authority and authority. He will not be unsated. No human, no ruler, no spiritual power, not even all other powers aligned together could remove him. Nothing will ever bring an end to his absolute rule. He has been, is, and will be most high. Now, that's only very good news because of the other aspects of who he is. In verse verse 1, the writer uh, praises God's name. Uh, Through the psalm, the writer calls uh, God the Lord, all capitals Lord. Uh, Our English translations write it like that because in the original Hebrew, the consonants Y-H-W-H are written with the vowels of the word equivalent of Lord uh, around them. Uh, When you see those all capitals Lord, it's it's, uh, talking about God's name, the Lord or Yahweh lies behind it. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, it tells the story of what, what happened when God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. So at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, uh, God said to Moses, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, uh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord Yahweh is. He just is. He is who he is. His name points to his independence. He is the one who just is. He's not derived from someone or something else. He's not dependent on anyone or anything else. He is and will remain independent. But gloriously, this independent God, the Most High, the utterly independent God, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So after the Exodus uh, and uh, Mount Sinai, uh, Moses asked God to show him his glory. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In our psalm, verse 2 mentions those words, steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, Steadfast love, um, it's the word for God's committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love, his covenant love, his promised love. Now there's a massive content to that love. Uh, In a sense, Exodus through to Deuteronomy is about God's covenant love. And the the rest of the Bible is about God keeping his covenant love promised. It is the Lord's loving commitment to bring his people to his place so they can live under his rule and blessing. That steadfast love tracks straight through to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'll just throw a couple of verses at you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In the psalm, verse 2 pairs that steadfast love with God's faithfulness. The Lord is steadfast, trustworthy, reliable, true to his word. He always comes through on his promises, he can be relied on completely. And the Most High, utterly independent Lord has promised steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love to his people. With those promises in mind, the reality of the Lord being faithful and reliable and true to his word is something to celebrate, something to be glad about, to thank and praise him because he will deliver what he has promised. Something to declare to others. Verse 5, the writer says, the Lord is upright. There is no unrighteousness in him. He is perfectly reliable, absolutely consistent, perfectly just, absolutely authentic. All those thoughts about God drive the writer to thank and praise and declare who God is. And who God is fits perfectly with 
what God does. It's part of him being absolutely consistent and faithful. So let's just go through some of the realities briefly about what God does. And how that drives the thanks and praise and declaration. So verses 4 and 5, God works. God's works, his great works. God's works in the Bible covers everything he does. He is the God who made everything that has been made, who sustains creation and keeps it going, who causes rain to fall, sun to shine, plants to grow, gives the crop. The natural world is his work. But read through the Psalms and you keep hearing the writer use the word, talk about God's works with a focus on God's saving works. He looks back to Exodus, he looks to his recent experience, he looks to the future and speaks about God's great saving works. He is the God who rescued Israel out of Egypt. He is the God who brought them in and gave them the promised land. He is the God who cares for each of his people. Thinking about God's great works in creation and salvation drives thanks and praise and declaration. His deep thoughts too, verse 5. The Lord's thoughts are beyond human understanding. We wouldn't know them if he didn't tell us. But wonderfully, he has told us. He's revealed things we refuse to see from his creation. He's revealed things about what is and what will be that we could not know without him telling us. Verse 6 says, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. Now, he's not talking about someone who's, he's not talking about intellectual ability. Uh, some very smart, smart people are very stupid in this way. Some, very, some less smart people are very stupid in this way as well. Uh, someone once said, I know words, I have the best words. Verse 6 is talking about humans who say to themselves, I know thoughts, I have the best thoughts. But they don't. God has the best thoughts. Those who don't think his thoughts, who reject his thoughts, don't see reality. They don't see things as they are. They don't see how things will be. God does. The focus here is on God knowing what he will do to stop rebels and to make his people flourish. So it's stupid to live as if that's not true because God will do it. He said he will do it and he will. Uh, Sure, there's a brief span of this lifetime uh, when verse 7, the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. But the writer's talking to people in a dry place where, where grass grows lush and grain after a little rain, but then drought hits and the grass dies and withers. Through life, uh, those who uh, reject God, those who are rebels, may seem to flourish, but it will not last. They are doomed to destruction forever. Verse 9 calls them the Lord's enemies. Then they aim to overturn the shape of the universe. They aim to step out from under the rule of the Most High. But there is no out from under the rule of the Most High. God will stop their rebellion. He will stop rebels. And the reason this is a source of gladness in the psalm is because verse 11, the good news for the writer, is that God's enemies are his enemies. See, God calls them to account for the hurt and harm they've done. God stops the hurt and harm they aim to do. And God makes his people flourish. 
10 to 15. Verse 10, the, the horn is a picture of power and strength in the Bible. Along with that freshly, that poured fresh oil is a picture of a victory celebration. Verse 12, 12 to 14 is in complete contrast to that grass that kind of grows up and then drought hits and it's gone. God's people aren't like grass that grows and dies in drought. God's people are like palm trees beside an oasis. They're like strong, majestic cedars of Lebanon. And look where they're planted, verse 13. With the Lord in his temple. Look how they last. Still bearing fruit in old age. Not at all like grass that dries uh, and dies in drought. They are ever full of sap and grain, fresh and strong. Now, it would be unfair and unjust if God promised rescue and did not deliver. But he has and he does and he will deliver. He will deliver an eternal flourishing. So even before they've been rescued, those who know God's great works and his deep thoughts, uh, that he will stop rebels, that he will make his people flourish, even before they've been rescued, those who know what God does can declare with the writer that God is upright and there is no unrighteousness in him. He judges justly. He keeps his promises. So you can see how in this psalm, thinking about who God is and what God does, drives the writer to thank God, to praise God, to declare to others who God is and what God does. Verse 3 mentions, it's the verse I haven't mentioned, uh, verse 3 mentions that he does it to mute the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre. He sings it. Music works on our passions. Uh, it's part of the way that God has wired us. It works on, a, on, on a, each of us differently, but it works on us. Music can carry us. It can change our feelings. It can provoke Joy, delight, sorrow, sadness, whether sensible words attached or not. It can also come in and support how we already fail. It can help us express how we fail. It can amplify how we fail. You see what's happening in this psalm? The writer is made glad by his thoughts of who God is and what God does. Those thoughts drive him to thank and praise and declare. Music isn't the driver in this psalm. It's not the main thing. It's the amplifier, not the instrument. It's the gear change, not the engine. But what a great amplifier and what a great gear. What a great amplifier and what a great gear change as we focus our thoughts on the living, true, and holy God. And the thoughts move us and the music comes in alongside those thoughts. Jonathan Edwards, um, I think 18th century American preacher, maybe 17th, uh, he reflected on it this way. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music 
but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. In other words, singing helps us process and express our thoughts in a way which is particularly prone to touch our conscience, will, and passions. Edwards used that word much more broadly than we would, the affections. It's not just emotions. Singing helps us process and express our thoughts in a way which is particularly prone to touch our conscience, will, and passions. So saying fits us, but singing the glorious gladness of seeing who God is and what God does fits us. Singing our sense of guilt and sorrow about our sin fits us. Singing our gratitude to our Savior who suffered for us fits us. Singing the gospel's demand on our life, our soul, our all fits us. Singing the deep longing for holiness fits us. Singing our humble dependence on God to work in us fits us. Singing our costly commitments to Christ's gospel going to all the nations fits us. Singing our deep longing for the day we will see our Savior fits us. Christian singing isn't mindless, it's thoughtful. It is full of thought. It must be full of thought and we must be careful about what thoughts it's full of so that we're responding to reality, so that our thoughts and conscience, will and passions are being tuned to truth, not falsehood. Reality, not illusion. We want to be careful that we're singing truth. Singing to God, singing uh, to one another with our thoughts locked on reality with our thoughts driving our response and the music helping us process and express that response. This psalm, of course, isn't about singing. It's about God. It's about the living, true, loving, and holy God, the Most High who rules over all, the Lord Yahweh who is utterly independent, the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, whose great works are seen in creation and salvation, whose deep thoughts reveal what we would not know otherwise, who stops rebels, who makes his people flourish, and whose person and work is most clearly seen in his Son, our Savior, who died and is raised. It is good to thank and praise and declare his glory. Because it fits the reality of who he is and what he does. Because it fits us. Thanks, praise, and declaration is what we do with whatever we value. And giving it voice expresses and completes our enjoyment. It's so important and so true, it must be said. And given the way that God wired us, It's so good to sing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we too um, know your deep thoughts, know you, 
and know you most clearly as we meet you in the scriptures, see you in your son. Father, please do help us to soak our thoughts in these realities of who you are and what you do. Father, please, as we think on them and sing on them, uh, please do move our thoughts, move our uh, conscience, will, and passions. That we give you glory with our lips, that we give you glory with our lives lived to please and honor you, the most high God, the utterly independent God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, whose great works are seen in creation, whose great love is seen in your Son. That's through him we pray. Amen.